Good morning. Today's Old Testament reading is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verses 7 through 18. Let us listen for the word of God. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with flowing streams, with springs and underground waters welling up in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land where you may eat bread without scarcity, where you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and from whose hills you may mine copper. You shall eat your fill and bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Take care that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments, his ordinances, and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. When you have eaten your fill and have built fine houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks have multiplied, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then do not exalt yourself, forgetting the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness, an arid wasteland with poisonous snakes and scorpions. He made water flow for you from flint rock and fed you in the wilderness with manna that your ancestors did not know, to humble you and to test you, and in the end to do you good. Do not say to yourself, my power and the might of my own hand have gained me this wealth. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, so that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your ancestors as he is doing today. We turn now to the Gospel reading, which comes from the Gospel of Matthew. And as I read it, there is a, an issue that every preacher, every Bible reader has with one of the Greek words. It can be translated as either servant or slave. Clearly, in our, the slaves of Greek time or of the Greek and Roman times and of the biblical times were not like the slaves of America, and yet they also were not like servants in that they were, they were not free to go and come. So um, kind of to follow both ways, when I read it in the New Testament, I will use slave as the NRSV does, but in the sermon we'll talk about the servant. So with that in mind, hear this parable. For as if... It is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. 
Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your town in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given. And they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. O Holy Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit may be with us so that we might hear your holy word through these human words. Help us as we grapple with this text and seek its meaning for our lives. In your Son's name we pray, Amen. As I was reminded in our discussion this week on this passage at the next week's sermon gathering, folks have at least three major issues when it comes to understanding this parable of the talents. The first issue is one of translation, and it's not the word for servant or slave, but when we hear the word talent, we think of a skill or a gift, something you're born with, perhaps, because that is what the English word means. And when we think of it that way, then we typically think of what this parable means is that the parable teaches that everyone has a talent. Some have many, others a few, but all of us have at least one. Maybe one's talent is playing the piano, or perhaps it is the gift of hospitality or the skill of organization. Whatever the talent is, the point is, God wants us to use our talents wisely and not waste them. That is true. But that is not the truth from this text. The problem with that reading of this text is that the English word misleads us in terms of what the underlying Greek word means. A talent. For Jesus' original audience was not the ability to play basketball or a piano well. Instead, it was a measure of currency or money, and a quite significant one at that, something equivalent to 15 or 20 times the annual wages of a laborer. So if we were to translate talent to the equivalent American money now, the parable might read this way. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave $3 million, to another $1.2 million, and to another $600,000, each according to his ability. That makes a difference, doesn't it? 
The second issue is one of interpretation. Is that man going on the journey, the rich master, meant to stand for God or Jesus? If so, does that mean that the God we worship is a harsh God who banishes timid servants to permanent exile, rewards the rich and makes them richer, while condemning the poor and making them poorer? And if so, really? Who wants to worship or obey that God? To address that issue, we need to know the difference between an allegory and a parable. In an allegory, everything stands for something else. If this were an allegory, then the master would stand for someone, presumably God or Jesus, and the servants would stand for someone, and even the talents would stand for something. Very precise. But with a parable, it's more complicated. In his parables, Jesus took the stuff of everyday life, stuff like lilies in the field, or a widow searching for a lost coin, or a master with three slaves. But he would take that something from everyday life and then put a twist on it. With this strange twist, one biblical scholar noted, Jesus would leave the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. In other words, if you like things cut and dried and in black and white, if you want to be able to open your Bible and get a sure and certain answer without really having to wrestle with the text or what Jesus is saying, then stay away from the parables. This parable, like all of Jesus' parables, requires active thought. What you think you understand today may not be what you understand a week from now or a year from now. To better understand the master's relationship with God and what the master means, we need to look more at depth at that third servant. Which leads to the greatest issue folks have with this passage. What's the problem with that third servant? After all, he doesn't embezzle money. He doesn't go out and spend it. He doesn't steal it. He doesn't lose any of it. When the master comes back, he simply hands over what he's been given. And yet, the master banishes him into permanent exile. That hardly seems fair, does it? To answer those questions, we need to look at the third servant again. The master leaves him with the equivalent in modern dollars of $600,000 and then departs for a long time before returning. What does the third servant do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. There's no wonder or gratitude. A master is just entrusted to a servant. Not his spouse, not his son or daughter, not his business partner or close friend. No, a servant. An absurd amount of money. And yet the servant expresses no gratitude and says not one word of thanks to the master, either when the master departs or when the master returns. Forget the gospel of Jesus Christ. This servant is forgetting the basic message of Deuteronomy 8 that Rosie just read. When you've eaten your fill and have built fine houses and live in them, do not forget the one who led you into the promised land, who is the source of all your blessings. Even the children know that when someone does something nice for you, what do you say? Thank you. The third servant, though, is not only ungrateful, he is also lazy. 
we tend to hear this parable through the filter of modern investment strategies and think somehow the first two servants were doing something bold and aggressive like day trading while the third servant simply was, did an ultra-conservative approach. But there's more to it than that. While there definitely was some risk in the ways that the first and second servant grew their gift, there apparently was also much labor on their part. Less an investment strategy, more like starting and growing your own business. The third servant did nothing. Once he buried that money, he didn't have to lift a finger until the master returned. And that was a long time later. But the greatest problem with the third servant is not so much an issue of translation or interpretation, but it's an issue of perception. He has a major perception problem when it comes to his master, and it affects everything. Note the trembling speech of this third servant. Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter a seed, so I was afraid. But consider this. Is there any reason up to this point in Jesus' parable to draw this conclusion? Absolutely not. Consider the first two servants have said nothing like that, and why would they? I mean, the master is entrusted with them this vast sum of money, not just for a day or two, but for a long time. In addition, in a culture where servants were expected to do their duty without receiving praise, pats on the back, or brass plaques, astonishingly, as Jesus tells this parable, this master gives them extravagant tribute, increased authority, and with those words, enter into the joy of your master, perhaps even welcomes them into his household as members of the family. In other words, as one commentator notes, everything in this story leads us to see the master as an extraordinary man, trusting, welcoming, generous, and benevolent. And yet, the third servant cannot see the master in this light. Sometimes we misread the owner's response to what the third servant has said and see it somehow as an endorsement of what that third servant has said. But what the owner is saying instead is, if you see me this way, that is harsh, then why didn't you simply invest the money with the bankers and then at least I would get a minimal return on what is mine? The bottom line is this. The third servant acts the way he does act because he is fearful. And he is fearful because of how he perceives the master. What you see is too often what you get. Just as in this parable, our perception of God can affect our faith and how we treat others. For example, if we view God primarily as an enforcer of rules, then we will get hung up by legalism in our own faith and in our treatment of others. If we visualize God as stern and prone to punishment, then we're probably going to struggle with a sense of never, never measuring up before God. But even worse, we're going to tend to treat others with a judgmental spirit. On the other hand, when we view God primarily in terms of grace, 
We are surprised and uplifted by the numerous gifts and moments of grace we experience all around us. And when we imagine God to be a God of love, we find it far easier to experience God's love in our own lives and then share it with others. How do we perceive God? And what is the evidence for that perception? Those are questions worth probing in some quiet moments this week. As is this question, how do we think God perceives us? I don't think the third servant just had a perception problem with God. I also think he had a perception problem about himself. He doesn't think he's worthy of the trust that the master places in him. He is so afraid that he will mess up that he can't get those talents out of his hands fast enough and into the ground. How do we perceive God and ourselves? Here's the evidence that the Bible gives us for God. Our God is not a harsh God, reaping where God did not sow. No, God is a generous God who has made an absurdly generous gift to us and to the world. In Jesus Christ, God has come among us and given God's self to us out of love. Consider the context of this parable. We're in chapter 25 in Matthew's Gospel. In the next week, in two short chapters, Jesus will give up his life on the cross because God loves us that much. But this message of love and grace does not even end there because just as in the parable, God displays great trust in us, choosing us to be Christ's body on the earth. We're not only loved by God, we are chosen by God to be God's agents of love and justice here on earth. Five talents, two talents, one talent. However much we have been given, it is enough. Because when we get off our duffs, when we overcome our fear and trust in God's grace, when we let God work through us, then God can double and multiply God's investment in us. This is really what those talents signify. Not gifts or skills like a musician's ear or a basketball player's skill. Not simple piles of gold or the principal balance in an investment fund, but the good news of the gospel. Talents are the treasures of the Christian faith. Love and trust and hope and joy and generosity. And those talents, those treasures, can only grow when we, like Jesus, are willing to take risks, be vulnerable, and give them away for the sake of the world. Love, trust, hope, joy, generosity, and the other treasures of the gospel, they are more like muscles than money. The more we use them, the more we give them away, the more we have. You see, friends, this parable of the talents is ultimately a parable of invitation. The problem with the third servant is that he cannot hear or accept that invitation. He not only has buried that talent, he has buried himself 
in what amounts to a self-created darkness. Jesus invites us instead to follow the path of the first two servants, the path of gratitude and trust and love. That is the only path which leads to the joy of our Master. With the gifts and blessings that we have received, let us not bury them. Instead, let us put them to work freely and extravagantly. Let us pray. O Lord, for your many blessings and gifts, we give you thanks. And we pray for the courage, the generosity, the love to freely share them and put them to work. In your gracious name we pray, amen.